This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Narrative Economics by Robert J. Schiller, How Stories Go Viral and Drive Major Economic Events. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 10, Panic versus Confidence. Since the early 19th century, a major class of narratives about confidence has influenced economic fluctuations, people's confidence in banks, in business, in one another, and in the economy. Economically, the most important stories are those about other people's confidence and about efforts to promote public confidence. Among the earliest confidence narratives are those about banking panics, that is, whether we have confidence in the banks to make good on their promises. We mean not only public confidence in the morality of bankers and bank regulators, but also in the bank, but also confidence in banks' other customers, confidence that they will not all try to withdraw their money at once. Raymond Moley, one of President Franklin Roosevelt's brain trust experts during the Great Depression, put this idea into a simple narrative, saying, quote, A depression is much like a run on the bank. It's a crisis of confidence. People panic and grab their money. There's a story I like to tell. In my hometown, when I was a little boy, an Irishman came up from the quarry where he was working and went into the bank and said, If my money's here, I don't want it. If my money is not here, I do want it. End quote. This and other confidence narratives help us understand major events marking modern history. Several classes of confidence narratives have characterized the history of the industrialized economies. The first class is a financial panic narrative that reflects psychologically based stories about banking crises. The second class is a business confidence narrative that attributes slow economic activity not so much to financial crises so much as to a sort of general pessimism and unwillingness to expand business or to hire. The third class is a consumer confidence narrative that attributes slow sales to the fears of individual consumers, whose sudden lack of spending can bring about a recession. Figure 10.1 plots the succession of these narratives since 1800. All of these slow-moving narratives have shown growth paths that span lifetimes. Financial panic came first, followed by narratives about crisis in business confidence, followed by a narrative's of a crisis in consumer confidence. As narratives spread about the dangers of business losses and decreased consumer confidence, increased self-censorship of narratives may, and sometimes does, encourage panic. Because people are aware that others self-censor, they increasingly try to read between the lines of public pronouncements to try to determine the truth. Broad public interest in the idea that financial events might be related to psychology began in the early 19th century, continued after the Panic of 1857 in the run-up to the U.S. Civil War, and then grew over the decades. The phrase financial panic peaks on Google Ngrams in 1910, three years after the famous Panic of 1907. The financial panic epidemic was part of a narrative constellation that grew out of it. Individual panics ebbed and flowed within the narrative constellation. A particularly strong narrative of the Panic of 1907 involved a celebrity, J.P. Morgan, the most prominent banker in the United States at the time. 
which made it last for decades. It stands out in the figure as, a high, as the highest point for public attention to financial panics. Figure 10.2 shows the major U.S. financial panics individually. For example, the Panic of 1857 was mostly forgotten within a few years. It later returned as part of a narrative constellation about other panics. During the 1857 financial panic, news reports covered objective events like bankruptcies, bank runs, and suspensions, but they also referred to rumors and emotions. An 1857 newspaper article summarized the panic of that year, saying, quote, Brokers and others are highly excited and circulate monstrous reports. The general disturbance of the public mind makes it impossible to treat the subject coolly or ascertain the views of the most reliable persons in the business community. End quote. We must reflect on the prevailing 19th century narratives and associated views of the world to understand why people and newspapers spoke of panics rather than depressions in the modern sense of the word, and why they never spoke of consumer confidence. Contemporary narratives about financial panics mostly were viewed as stories about wealthy, pretentious people who had bank accounts and who perhaps deserved some of the disruption caused by a financial panic and its associated depression of trade. In the 18th and 19th centuries, most people did not save at all except maybe for some coins hidden under a mattress or in a crack in the wall. In economic terms, the Keynesian marginal propensity to consume out of additional income was close to 100%. That is, most people, except for those with high incomes, spent their entire income. So, to the spinners of narratives of these past centuries, there would have been no point in surveying ordinary people about their consumer confidence. Most people then had no concept of retirement or sending their children to college, so they had no motivation to save toward those goals. If they became bedridden in old age, they expected to be cared for by family or by a local church or charity. Life expectancy was short, and medical care was not expensive. People tended to see poverty as a symptom of moral degradation and drunkenness or dipsomania, now called alcoholism. They're not as a condition related to the strength of the economy. So there was practically no thought that consumer confidence should be bolstered. The people saw the authorities as responsible for instilling moral virtues rather than building consumer confidence. The idea that the poor should be taught to save grew gradually over the 19th century, the result of propaganda from the savings bank movement. But contemporary thought was miles away from the idea that a depression might be caused by ordinary people heeding the propaganda and trying to save too much. A few years after use of the term financial panic peaked, after the Panic of 1907, the U.S. passed the Aldridge Vreeland Act in 1908, which created national currency associations at precursors to, to a central bank, and a successor act the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, which founded the U.S. Central Bank, whose purpose was to provide a cure for business panics. A powerful narrative at that time was the story of the celebrity J.P. Morgan, widely considered one of the richest people in America. In the absence of any U.S. Central Bank during the Panic of 1907, he used his own money for, 
and he prevailed on other bankers to contribute to, a bailout of the banking system. This saving of the United States from a serious depression was a truly powerful story, and Morgan's celebrity only grew. He later built his central office at 23 Wall Street. Completed in 1913, it is still there today, though he died before he could occupy it. It was directly opposite the New York Stock Exchange, completed in 1903 and still functioning today, and across the street from Federal Hall, which was built in 1842 and replaced the original home of the Congress of the Confederation. George Washington was sworn in as first president of the U.S. on the steps of Federal Hall in 1789. Morgan chose to make his building strangely small and modest, befitting his public spirit. Thus, Morgan emerged in the narrative as a central and model-worthy hero of America. The recovery of confidence after the Panic of 1907 was, in substantial measure, confidence in one man. The Federal Reserve System was modeled after his 1907 consortium of bankers. In accordance with the narrative, the new central bank was technically owned by bankers, though it was created by the federal government. Every Federal Reserve chair since the founding of the Fed fits into the narrative as a J.P. Morgan avatar. After 1930, the narrative mutated and spread in a different direction. Deficiencies of business confidence and later consumer confidence were associated more with despair than with sudden fear. By then, the word depression had also taken on another meaning, a psychological state of melancholy or dejection. So the increased use of depression to describe an economic contraction reflected a new psychologically-based economic narrative of the time. During the Depression of the 1930s, George Gallup, the originator of the Gallup Polls and a pioneer in public opinion measurement, became the first social scientist to survey business and consumer confidence using scientific polling methods. Then, in the 1950s, Psychologist George Katona at the University of Michigan began constructing a, an index of consumer sentiment. The Survey Research Center at the University of Michigan still produces this index, which Katona created in 1952. Later, in 1966, the Conference Board created a Consumer Confidence Index. Both of these indexes are based on questions that consumers answer about their impressions of the strength of the current and near-future economy. None of the questions used to construct these indexes asks respondents about the risk of a banking panic or a sudden stampede of investors, reflecting the changed narrative about business. But the change is not total, and financial panic narratives still have a chance to be rekindled, as we saw, for example, in the United Kingdom with the Northern Rock Bank in 2007, the first banking panic there since 1866. Crowd psychology goes viral. Financial panic narratives have a strong psychological component, and a key concept here is crowd psychology. By the middle of the 19th century, Charles McKay's popular 1841 book, Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions, began to attract public attention to crowd psychology. Gustave Le Bon popularized the term itself in his best-selling 1895 book titled The Crowd. Crowd psychology began to become influential around that date and grew in an epidemic-like path, 
peaking in the early 1930s. The growing number of references to crowd psychology appears to have a parallel in the rising level of the booming stock market over the 1920s. Closely related to the idea of crowd psychology is suggestibility, which refers to the idea that individual human behavior is subconsciously imitative of and reactive to others. The word, first seen in the late 19th century, appears to be pivotal in narrative constellations and in popular understandings of crowd psychology. Suggestibility and its relative autosuggestion, which means the practice of suggesting to oneself, follow a fairly standard epidemic curve, peaking around 1920 and mostly declining ever since. The concepts likely played a role in the economic exuberance of the 1920s and the depression of the 1930s. The idea that the human mind is suggestible is diametrically opposed to the concept of economic man who is a rational optimizer, who acts as if guided by careful calculations. Suggestibility implies that oftentimes we are acting blind or as in a dream. By 1920, the concept of suggestibility was widely known, suggesting that people of that era may have felt that other people are easily influenced by abstract or subtle examples, and are therefore more likely to conduct their economic behavior, expecting a highly unstable world. The narrative would lead them to expect herd-like behavior, and perhaps to contribute to such behavior. If you think that other people are members of an impressionable herd, you may be more likely to try to anticipate the herd's movements and try to get ahead of them. We can use the concepts of crowd psychology and suggestibility to understand depressions, such as the Great Depression of the 1930s. In doing so, we should look not only at the direct applications of these concepts, but also at the ways in which people think that these concepts help explain the depressions. These were their concepts much more than ours. The Psychology of Suggestion and the Autosuggestion Movement Close to the beginning of the suggestibility epidemic in 1898, the Psychology of Suggestion was published. The book, written by Boris Sidus, a colleague of psychologist William James, reported on experiments conducted at the Harvard Psychological Laboratory. Citus defines suggestibility as follows, quote, I hold a newspaper in my hands and begin to roll it up. I soon find that my friend sitting opposite me rolled up his in a similar way. This, we say, is a case of suggestion. My friend, Mr. A, is absent-minded. He sits near the table thinking of some abstruse mathematical problem that baffles all his efforts to solve it. Absorbed in the solution of that intractable problem, he is both blind and deaf to what is going on around him. His eyes are directed on the table, but he appears not to see any of the objects there. I put two glasses of water at the table, and at short intervals make passes in the direction of the glasses, passes which he seems not to perceive. Then I resolutely stretch out my hand, take one of the glasses, and begin to drink. My friend follows suit. Dreamily he raises his hand, takes the glass, and begins to sip, awakening fully to consciousness when a good part of the tumbler is emptied." End quote. 
The term autosuggestion came a little bit later than suggestibility, but it led to new expectations that one could manipulate not only oneself, but also economic activity. Starting in 1921, the autosuggestion epidemic attracted widespread public interest. Emile Cui, a French psychologist who went on a book tour in the U.S. in 1922, was the most influential proponent of the autosuggestion movement. This, this key idea, attractive to so many millions, was that most of us are not successful because we do not believe that we can succeed. To achieve success, one must repeatedly suggest to oneself that one will be a success. Kui advised people to recite frequently a key affirmation. Every day, in every way, I get better and better. Napoleon Hill, whose varied career included motivational speaking, added to the self-empowerment narrative in his 1925 book, The Law of Success in 16 Lessons, and his 1937 bestseller, Think and Grow Rich. He emphasized channeling the power of the subconscious mind to adopt a positive, wealth-building attitude. The autosuggestion narrative was a mutation of an earlier hypnosis narrative that went viral over the few decades before the 1920s. That narrative described traveling hypnotists who put people into a trance. Those in a trance then showed immense suggestibility. According to the 1920 book Success Fundamentals by Orison Sweat Martin, quote, One reason why the human race as a whole has not measured up to its possibilities, to its promise. One reason why we see everywhere splendid ability doing the work of mediocrity is because people do not think half enough of themselves. We do not realize our own divinity, that we are part of the great causation principle of the universe. We do not know our strength, and not knowing, we cannot use it. A Sandow, after Eugene Sandow, a muscle man and bodybuilder who amazed and inspired audiences with his feats, a Sandow could not get out of a chair if a hypnotist could convince him that he could not. He must believe he can rise before he can actually rise, for he who thinks he can't is as true as he can who thinks he can. End quote. The autosuggestion movement started to peter out after 1924, but it appears to have had after-effects. Notably, the highly successful 1935 pro-Nazi film Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl appears to borrow from autosuggestion. Hitler's appeal was based in part on the idea that he would inspire the German nation out of the depression into which it had sunk, despairing and insecure, in the wake of World War I. At the time, it was widely believed that the Depression resulted from a loss of confidence and that Germans needed a leader to restore the nation's confidence. Riefenstahl's movie depicts Hitler in a speech before the adoring multitudes, saying, It is our will that this state shall endure for a thousand years. We are happy to know that the future is ours entirely. Hitler says it is our will, as if saying those words will magically turn Germany into the dominant world power. Behind all this interest in the unforeseen force of confidence in human affairs was an analogy to the unforeseen force of air pressure on weather and the possibility of forecasting both. Forecasting the weather, 
forecasting confidence in the economy. Scientific weather forecasting was a phenomenal new discovery of the mid-19th century. The science advanced shortly after two important inventions of the 1840s, the telegraph, which transmitted information about weather conditions in dispersed locations, and the practical barograph, which created a time series plot of changes in air pressure. People were impressed by the new weather forecasts, which had and continue to have great scientific appeal. For example, in one famous story about the Crimean War, scientists in November of 1854 concluded that two apparently separate storms were in fact one storm, enabling them to establish its trajectory and provide a forecast that saved the British and French fleets from destruction. Weather forecasting stimulated people's imagination as to what modern science could achieve. By the 1890s, newspapers routinely published weather forecasts daily. Such repetition ensures the strong epidemic potential of meteorology narratives. These narratives also suggest an analogy to economic forecasting. Changes in public confidence seem analogous to shifting winds or air pressure. Indeed, people will say that recovery, pessimism, or some other inclination is in the air. It seems natural for people to think that if the meteorologists can forecast the winds, then economists should be able to forecast recessions. To the extent that the public believes economic forecasts of booms or recessions, there may be an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in the economic forecasts. People hear economists' pronouncements that a recession is imminent and thus postpone activities that might stimulate the economy. Conversely, because these scientists and economists, economists note that past recessions have always ended, people may come to expect any given recession to end. Suppose, by analogy, that weather forecasters everywhere say that they have information to indicate that a certain region is in danger of bad storms, and that the danger from such storms typically lasts six months. People might therefore cancel many activities for six months, and economic activity might fall for six months. With economic forecasts of a recession, people might observe other people decrease their spending after the warning and take that evi as evidence of a storm of lost confidence. The idea that economic fluctuations tend to repeat themselves follows an older scientific tradition that has had a prominent place in modern culture. For example, astronomer Edmund Haley noted in the year 1682 that some, the same comet was returning again and again, and he predicted it would be visible from Earth again in 1758. Halley was proven right, and to this day, Halley's comet returns every 75.3 years. Though the comet has faded so much that in its latest arrival, in 1985, it was almost invisible. The story of Halley's Comet is a great one that remains vivid in the popular memory. A constellation of narratives is now built around it, such as the story of that Mark Twain, born in a Halley's Comet year, predicted his own death 75 years later when Halley's Comet returned. The earliest ProQuest news and newspapers mention of the business cycle came during the Depression of 1858, 
and it appeared alongside a reference to whether, quote, some, claiming to be learned in meteorology, say the seasons ran in decades. It seems also that there is a sort of business cycle of the same length of time, and it happens very fortunately that the decimal panic comes at the same time with the mildest winter. Whether this is a coincidence or a providence, or whether it is a fact at all, I leave for others to decide. The idea that, sorry, end quote. The idea that business fluctuations are a repetitive cyclical event with a wavelength of a decade or any other identifiable fixed interval has become less popular with economists, but the narrative that recessions and drops in confidence are somewhat periodic and forecastable remains entrenched in popular thinking. Weather forecasting also inspired the idea that there ought to be statistically documented leading indicators of future economic fluctuations. Within a decade after the 1929 stock market crash that preceded the Great Depression, Wesley Mitchell and Arthur Burns in 1938 pioneered the leading indicators approach to economic forecasting, which encourages people to move into precautionary mode in their economic decision-making after a decline in the stock market, thus possibly creating the very recession that was forecast. Leading indicators today include the Department of Commerce's Business Conditions Development, now melded into the Survey of Current Business, the Conference Board's Composite Index of Leading Indicators, and the OECD's Composite Leading Indicators. A ProQuest or Ngram search for the term leading indicators shows that the idea has undergone a long, slow epidemic starting around the 1930s and is still going strong. Confidence as a barometer for the economy. Just as we can measure air pressure, we should be able to measure confidence. In addition, unlike air pressure, confidence might be subject to influence, in which case good patriots are morally obligated to support public confidence. Indeed, Calvin Coolidge, the President of the United States from 1923 to 1929, took it upon himself to boost public belief in the economy and in the stock market. There was great controversy over Coolidge's reassurance, sometimes called the Coolidge Mellon Bull Tips. In a 1928 Atlantic article, Ralph Roby identified a pattern. Practically every time the stock market declined significantly, or the public decried speculators' high, high level of borrowing to purchase stocks, either President Calvin Coolidge or Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon made a very optimistic statement about the market or denied any problem with overspeculation. Roby doubted that there was any rational basis for Coolidge's and Mellon's optimism, which he interpreted as an effort to maintain public confidence in the stock market. The Coolidge Mellon Bull Tips may have been part of the administration's attempts to mollify the influentials who feared any disturbance of investor confidence. A 1928 article in the Wall Street Journal observed, quote, Chief of the executive of one of our leading industrial corporations was discussing the stock market with some friends not long ago. I am bullish on our own stock for the immediate pull, he remarked and I would like to take on a line of the stock. I do not speculate, so of course the stock would be put in my name. The trouble is selling it. I have all I want to carry for the future, 
but if I sold any stock, the employees would soon hear of it, and they are in most instances shareholders, and it might not only disturb them, but actually give them a hint to get out of their own investment holdings. Hence, I leave what I know to be a good quick thing alone." End quote. The market crashed in October 1929. Eight months earlier, in February of 1929, the Federal Reserve Board had warned that the Federal Reserve would not support banks that loaned into a rising market. It qualified its statement by noting that it neither assumes the right nor any disposition to pass the merits on the merits of a speculation or to pass judgment on the merits of a speculation. But the investing public read between the lines and reacted intensely and immediately. The Washington Post reported on a hectic battle between the Federal Reserve and Wall Street, and with Wall Street largely of the, of the opinion that the Federal Reserve should mind its own business. On August 9, 1929, just two and a half months before the crash, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York raised its rediscount rate, the rate at which it lends to banks. Never before in the nation's history had there been a government authority with a mission that could be interpreted as stabilizing the stock market. The narrative of, of the battle between Wall Street and the Fed probably added to the contagion of stories that added great importance to the stock market crash of 1929 in the following months. It also led to a widespread impression that people in the know were sensing over-speculation. After the crash, dish disillusionment with prognostications by public officials, business people, and journalists intensified. In 1930, one observer said, quote, Unfortunately, there, ap there appears to be a strong tendency among writers on business subjects to put out nothing but optimistic statements and to avoid all discussions that might be construed as pessimism, end quote. In 1931, Alexander Dana Noyes, the financial editor of the New York Times, noted, quote, Men of affairs, when they, fix their, when they affix their names to a New Year Day prophecy, will seek for a hopeful side and so exclude any disagreeable offsets, end quote. At the same time, no one wanted to be accused of shouting fire in a crowded theater, worsening the public's fears and possibly causing a stampede out of the markets. The original narrative of a fire in a crowded theater goes back to about half a century before the crash to 1884, as reported in the New York Times. Quote, the curtain rose in, the, in a crowded house on the, at the performance of Storm Beaten, in the Mount Morris Theater in Harlem on Tuesday night. The fire scene was being enacted when the cry of fire three times repeated rang through the building. Many blanched faces were visible in the audience, but the continuance of the play gave reassurance and a panic, which was imminent, was averted. A youth named Francis McCarran, res residing at number 2446 Fourth Avenue, was pointed out by Louis by Louis Eisler as having caused the alarm, and the roundsman and policeman Edmiston took him into custody. Justice Weld sent him to the island for one month. End quote. The fire in a crowded theater narrative did not seem to catch on right away. Later, the narrative was mentioned in a 1919 Supreme Court opinion written by then Justice 
later Chief Justice, Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. It thus became connected with a celebrity. The narrative started to pick up a little in the 1930s, and then went viral after that. Throughout the 1930s, the idea took root that the Great Depression resulted from an epidemic of reckless talk by opinion leaders who were oblivious to its psychological impact. In reality, though, prominent people seem to have been very aware of the possible psychological effects of their talk, which led to the creation of another narrative. Thought leaders were now so worried about their talk inciting fear that the public began to assume a general bias toward false optimism. In other words, John Q. Public believed that thought leaders were trying to sound optimistic and that the listener had to correct for that overconfidence. It is easy to see how expectations may have become much more volatile in such an environment. In keeping with earlier narratives of panic, many people also saw the Great Depression as a stampede or panic. When people saw other people running from the Depression, their fears made them run too. This sense of fear took strong hold on the public imagination. Yale economics professor Irving Fisher wrote in 1930, quote, The chief danger, therefore, did not inhere in conditions at all. It was the danger of fear, panicky fear, which might be communicated from the stock market to business. My only fear is the fear of fear, are the words of a courageous man, end quote. Thomas Mullen assistant to Major James Curley of Boston, made a similar statement in 1931, saying, quote, I believe the only thing we need to fear is fear itself, end quote. Later, in 1933, during the worst year of the Great Depression, President Franklin Roosevelt said in his inaugural address, quote, So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance, end quote. Thomas Mullen was not a celebrity, but President Roosevelt was. So Roosevelt went viral as the originator of the idea, taking credit for an idea that sounded right because it had already been repeated many times. This articulation of the fear of fear itself may today be Roosevelt's most famous quote, and ProQuest News and Newspapers shows that it was used even more frequently in the first decade of the 21st century than it was in the 1930s. The vi but viral narratives are not easily controlled, and they may have unintended effects. Describing everyone as fearful and emphasizing the need for courage may create some patriotic resolve not to be fearful, at the same time, such exhortations make it difficult, or sorry, make it doubtful that others will truly cast aside their fear. Thus, identifying the problem as one of fear may only worsen the problem. Other narratives of the 1930s focused on ending up in a poorhouse so overcrowded that one had to open a cot every night to sleep among many others in a common area and fold up the cot every night to yield the floor space to other activities. There were also narratives of getting sick and having no money to pay a doctor. Even if these narratives were exaggerated, they reduced willingness to spend on anything but the barest necessities. As a result, 
people neglected routine dental work to conserve money, ultimately leading to painful dental emergencies. Roosevelt also offered moral reasons to spend. Days after his inauguration in 1933, he took the unusual step of addressing the nation by radio during a a massive national bank run that had necessitated shutting down all the banks. In this fireside chat, he explained the banking crisis and asked people not to continue their demands on banks. He spoke to the nation as a military commander would speak to its troops before a battle, asking for their courage and selflessness. Roosevelt asserted, You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite in banishing fear. The public honored Roosevelt's personal request. The bank run ended, and money flowed into, not out of the banks, when they reopened. We are still influenced by this narrative constellation. Although the overall narrative has not been powerful enough, or not used well enough to prevent recessions, it remains in our consciousness and may reassert itself if conditions change. Meanwhile, we are now in the habit of listening to the stock market's closing price at the end of every business day, often interpreting it as an indicator of public confidence. We also follow the various monthly confidence indexes, not because economists urge us to, but because we are still subject to the old narratives, suggesting that public confidence can break as suddenly as a shout of fire in a crowded theater. Narratives focused on mass unemployment. We can look for lists of the causes of the Great Depression created during the Great Depression. These stated or speculated or speculated causes tend to correspond to events whose confluence brought on the Depression. For example, Willard Monroe Kiplinger, the founder of today's Kiplinger Publications, offered the following list of causes in 1930, early in the Depression. The quote, the causes of unemployment are loosely stated as follows. One, the development of machines which do the work of many men under the direction of a few men. This is the technological aspect. Two, the overloading of industrial centers with men attracted or driven by circumstances from farms to cities. Three, the entrance of women into jobs formerly held by men. Four, immigration, which is now less of a factor in unemployment than years ago. And five, business depression, which is such a broad subject as to include both causes and effects of unemployment. These are pretty theories, and there is a large element of truth in each of them, particularly the first, relating to the development of labor-saving machinery. The point needing emphasis is, however, that no one of them supplies an answer nor even all five, for all five have ramifications that have never been studied or explored by qualified authorities, end quote. Only one of Kiplinger's five causes would come to mind today in our current popular narrative of the Great Depression, the business depression, which today most would say is related to loss of confidence. But Kiplinger published his list in 1930, And as the Great Depression wore on, more and more people began to think of it as driven by a loss of confidence. Kiplinger's list refers to facts, 
not narratives, but we can suppose that each of the five causes corresponds to a popular narrative in 1930, and thus is connected to other narrative constellations that are difficult to study. It is worth noting that some or many of these narratives probably had a long-term orientation, implying that the Great Depression would go on forever. As the 1930s wore on, the Great Depression narrative began to be infected with stories of the environmentally catastrophic Dust Bowl in the central U.S., the sequence of storms from 1934 to 1940 that hit Oklahoma, Kansas, Colorado, and Texas, blowing off improperly managed dried topsoil and destroying farms. John Steinbeck's 1939 novel, The Grapes of Wrath, which chronicled the travels of a family of migrant farm workers, helped to cement the association between, between the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. The Grapes of Wrath was a bestseller, later made into a 1940 movie, movie starring Harry Fonda. Henry Fonda, sorry. The book won a Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the Nobel Prize in Literature, and it has been assigned to U.S. high school and college students ever since. It is part of the constellation that has driven the Great Depression narrative. In her photographic record of the Great Depression, Dorothy Lange gives us memorable photos of poverty-stricken people in the Dust Bowl. Along with Lange's stark portraits, photos of drab, despondent men standing in a breadline, a man selling five-cent apples stacked neatly on a wooden, small wooden box or table on a city street, people lining up outside banks, and life in a Hooverville, a shantytown, provide us with a visual memory of the Depression today. The 1930s represented a turning point in economic measurement. Until then, no statistics reliably measured unemployment. The National Census of the United States had provided numbers of people working and not working, but those not working included the elderly, the sick, those pursuing an education, stay-at-home mothers, and vacationers. By the 1930s, the statistics began to focus on the unemployment rate, which measures unemployment based on the size of the labor force, not the size of the population. Since the end of the Great Depression, the monthly announcement of the unemployment rate may have encouraged thinking that we may be at risk for a repeat of the event. We can see the rise of the term unemployment rate sharply in Google engrams, though a significant increase did not occur until after 1960. It may seem odd that the term unemployment rate did not receive more coverage in the 1930s, but the lack of coverage may reflect the public's lack of familiarity with its quantitative representation. They did not yet clearly differentiate between involuntary unemployment and laziness and pauperism. In contrast, today's narratives focus on blameless unemployment, the unemployment of those sincerely attempting to find a job. A different narrative of the Great Depression develops. The narrative of the Great Depression as it stands today would likely mention few of the causes that Kiplinger and others enumerated as it was happening. Instead, people today tend to identify the causes of the Great Depression as a fear and a loss of confidence related to bank failures. Bank failures and shadow bank failures were key narratives in the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009. In his 1930 list, Kiplinger did not even mention bank failures, most of which happened after 1930. 
some modern theories that seek to explain the extreme length and depth of the Great Depression without relying directly on any of these argue that the 1933 National Industrial Recovery Act, which imposed codes of fair competition in an effort to combat the Great Depression, actually prolonged the Depression. The act was in response to another narrative about inadequate purchasing power, described in Chapter 13 below. The act made it easier for businesses to form cartels and more difficult for them to cut wages. Although the Supreme Court declared the act unconstitutional in 1935, Cole and Ohanian argue that the Roosevelt administration managed to keep the codes in effect. In addition, the initial period of high unemployment led to continued high unemployment because the remaining employed labor became insiders, while those laid off became outsiders. As Assar Lindbeck and Dennis Snower have argued, the insiders tended to band together and ask for higher wages when de demand increases, rather than ask for the laid-off outsiders to be rehired. Other theories have merit, too. Economic historians Barry Eichengreen and Peter Temin have argued that the length and pain of the Great Depression were related to the unthinking national commitment to the gold standard, despite changes in labor markets that made wages more downwardly rigid. They have shown that countries that abandoned the gold standard earlier recovered better. Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz, in their book Monetary History of the United States, had blamed the Great Depression on the Federal Reserve and its control of the money supply. But Eichengreen and Temin argued that declines in the U.S. money supply were mostly caused by the economy, not the Fed. Declines in the money supply were triggered in part by the bank runs that were caused by the same feedback that created the Great Depression. In fact, Friedman and Schwartz argued that the Fed would have done better if it had offset these declines. Temin also observed that Friedman and Schwartz indicated no substantial correspondence between the bank runs and measures of economic activity. These economists only tell part of the story of the severity of the Great Depression. The comedian Groucho Marx offered a more entertaining, popular account of the Great Depression. According to his autobiography, published in 1959, Groucho was in his early 30s in the late 1920s, making good money as an actor in popular vaudeville st stage shows. He recalls, quote, Soon a much hotter business than show business attracted my attention and the attention of the country. It was a little thing called the stock market. I first became acquainted with it around 1926. It was a pleasant surprise to discover that I was a pretty shrewd trader, or at least so it seemed for everything I bought went up. My salary in Coconuts, the stage show, was around 2000 a week, but this was pin money compared to the dough I was theoretically making in Wall Street. Mind you, I enjoyed doing the show, but I had very little interest in the salary. I took market tips from everybody. It's hard to believe it now, but incidents like the following were commonplace in those days. Groucho, end quote. Groucho goes on to describe a number of tips that he and his brothers overconfidently bet on. A tip from an elevator man, a Wall Streeter, his theatrical producer, and someone he met on a golf course. He views his own experience as great folly and struggles to understand his own participation in it. Ideas about the craziness of the Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression became legendary through the persuasive accounts of good storytellers like Groucho Marx, 
who had much more public influence than economists. In fact, attention to this story has largely kept growing and growing. Figure 10.4 suggests that far more attention was paid to the Great Depression in 2009 than during the Great Depression itself, though we must understand that people hadn't named the economic downturn the Great Depression as it was happening. Instead, they just called it hard times. Other depression-linked narratives of the period were associated with words unusual to that period, such as breadline, whose use grew rapidly from 1929 to 1934, and has decayed fairly steadily ever since. The interest in the Great Depression in 2009 is confirmed in Google Trends search counts as well, though not as dramatically as those shown in Figure 10.4. Ultimately, how do narratives of the Great Depression affect how we think about economic downturns today? consider a narrative-based chronology of the 2007-2009 to world financial crisis, which taps into stories about 19th century bank runs that were virtually synonymous with financial crises. After the Great Depression, bank runs were thought to be cured. The Northern Rock bank run in 2007, the first UK bank run since 1866, brought back the old narratives of panic depositors and angry crowds outside closed banks. The story led to an international skittishness to the Washington Mutual bank run a year later in the United States and to the Reserve Prime Fund run a few days after that in 2008. These events then led to the very unconventional U.S. government guarantee of U.S. money market funds for a year. Apparently, governments were aware that they could not allow the old stories of bank runs to feed public anxiety. In the heart of the 2007-2009 to recession, the Great Depression narrative may have intertwined with bank-run narratives to create this popular perception. Quote, We have passed through a euphoric, speculative, immoral period like the Roaring Twenties. The stock market and banks are collapsing now as they did in 1929, and the entire economy might collapse again, as it did in the 1930s. We might all lose our jobs and crowd around failed banks, in a desperate attempt to get our money, end quote. In short, the Great Depression and its causes, after a period of, of euphoria, a loss of confidence, remains a powerful narrative. The Great Depression was a traumatic period in the nation's history that is constantly on people's minds as they listen to other narratives regarding what may happen next. Far less remembered than the confidence and fear constellation of stories is a different constellation that was also prominent in the minds of people who lived during the Great Depression. Narratives about modesty, compassion, and simple living. These narratives are mostly in remission, and as of this writing, have been replaced by success narratives that justify conspicuous consumption, as we will discuss in the next chapter. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.